You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. Welcome and thank you for joining me. I created this podcast along with everything I do at yourparentingmentor.com to support and inspire you to be the best parent you can be. I know for a fact and from experience that parenting was never meant to be done alone. From conception to preschool, my mission is to give you the tools, strategies, and knowledge to embrace and elevate your parenting experience. I'm dedicated to supporting, inspiring, and guiding you to nurture your child's immense potential with as much joy and ease as humanly possible. Make sure to take time to check out all of the resources I have gathered for you in the show notes, as well as on my website, yourparentingmentor.com. And be sure to get on my email list so you do not miss a single episode and other products and events I curate specifically for you. And please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions, concerns, or feedback. A warm welcome to you and thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. And today I have Kara Goodwin, who is also the parenting translator. So I am very excited to be speaking with you, Kara, to help us translate a bit of the information that parents get these days. Yes, I'm so happy to be here. Yes, welcome. So as I always like to get us started is I'd love for my guests to define what the art of parenting means to them. Yes. So I think, you know, the art of parenting to me is really, you know, I, I do a lot of work with translating the research into information that parents can use, but it's not as straightforward as just doing whatever the research suggests you should do as a parent. It's really more of an art than a science. So it's really you know, this this complicated process of combining, you know, the research as a guide, but also following your own intuition, your own knowledge of your child, your own sense of what is best for your family, given a lot of different unique factors. So it's really this art of combining, you know, multiple sources of information and choosing what is best for your individual child, for your individual family. Beautiful. And I know that on your your website, you have that your translator that is grounded in science and love. And that that seems like a pretty good a definition also of the art of parenting. That's, a, that's beautiful. So thank you for being here. And uh, just before we get too involved in our conversation, I would love if you could share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. Yes. So I'm a child psychologist and a mother to three kids. My kids are currently two and a half, five and seven. So I feel like I'm very much in the more challenging parts of parenthood. And I was a psychologist before I became a mother. And when I became a mother, it became very clear to me, you know, I would be talking to my other parent friends about, you know, research I'd learned in my training as a psychologist, and they would have no idea what I was talking about. And so it occurred to me that there's, you know, there's all this research out there on child development and parenting And it's not really reaching the parents who need it. And even if it was, you know, more accessible, a lot of parents don't have time or the training to really delve into these complex research articles. So my goal is really to take, you know, the most recent research that's out there 
and to translate it into information that parents can actually use in their everyday lives um, in hopes that this can help make their everyday lives a little bit easier and give them a little bit more confidence and a little bit more information in making all the difficult decisions we have to make as parents. What a beautiful service. Thank you. Because it's true that we are, you know, in the information age, but I think there's an information overload and uh, to make sense of it. But also, like, how do you know what is what is real? Not not real, but like what I should be paying attention to or what is really evidence based and, and so forth. So how do you like, do you have suggestions for parents of, of how to know to, to decipher where the information is coming from and if it's information that is to be followed? Yes, I think there's definitely an information overload. You know, there's so much information out there on the internet, um, particularly on social media about parenting. And a lot of parents, you know, we we used to grow up in, you know, these villages full of, you know, mothers and cousins and grandmothers and aunts and and we had this village that gave us parenting information, but we've lost that village. And particularly with COVID, the village kind of became non-existent. So a lot of parents are turning to online information um, to get gain parenting knowledge. But And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of great information out there. But I think it's very important for parents to know that you know, anybody can log on, you know, create a blog, log on to social media, call themselves a parenting expert, and they can say whatever they want. Do you know there's no vetting process for this information that's out there? So parents have to be very careful consumers of what they read. And um, a, a good way to, to tell if what somebody saying is evidence-based is to look at, um, you know, whether or not they cite research and, you know, particularly when they're making claims that, you know, science proves or research says, you know, there should be some research cited. And if it's not cited, I would ask, you know, the, I, I do this on social media a lot when people are claiming in a reel, you know, that the research says this, and I'm like, I don't know if this research. So I'm like, please cite the research. And so ask them to cite research. And then, you know, this be more difficult, but go to the source of the research and make sure it actually applies to what the person is actually discussing. Because sometimes research can be misinterpreted and it's very important to look at the actual source and make sure it is applicable to the situation that you're that, that the person's talking about or you're trying to solve as a parent. So yes, and and that can be like you say, you know, parents don't have much time on their hands, and sometimes they just want a a quick answer. So that could be, I could see where that could be problematic too, as to you know to find resources where you're sure that the information is um, is valid information. One thing that I know you we kind of talked offline before starting the the recording, you were talking about how the the global pandemic that we, you know, went through these past two, two and a half years, 
uh, now third year, uh, has affected our, our children's development. I mean, there's, there's, you know, we, we have a whole generation of pandemic babies, right. Who were kind of born in, in this very isolated, I know some of the families that I work with, you know, had no one, uh, you, you talk about the village, but there was just, you know, a zoom village and that was about it. So how has the, pandemic or that whole, you know, experience affected our children's development? And, and, you know, first of all, in what way has it affected? And then what can parents do about it now? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I have a pandemic baby myself. So I, my son was born in June 2020. So I really feel for the parents who, um, you know, it was hard at all stages of parents. I think it was really hard for parents of teenagers, for example. But um, you know, I really feel for the the people who had pandemic babies because it was a very, very isolating time. And as if that wasn't hard enough, now we're seeing all these headlines come out in the media. You know, um, I saw one today that said, you know, social isolation damages the brains of pandemic babies. And I mean, that's terrifying as a parent, you know, thinking about your child's brain development, like being irreparably harmed. And, you know, I think the headlines are very alarmist and that the research that's coming out is really showing very few overall delays across, if you look across all children um, who were babies and toddlers during the pandemic, you're seeing, we're seeing very few overall delays. There is some evidence for some delays in social communication. But the big takeaway message is that there's a lot of variation. So it seems that some children thrive during the pandemic and were relatively unaffected by the social isolation and some of the negative impacts, and that some children were severely impacted and showed um, developmental delays. And it probably has to do a lot with the resources that the family had during the pandemic. So lower income families, families that experienced job loss, um, showed worse outcomes during the pandemic. And there are some families that had enough resources to provide their children with a stimulating environment even during the pandemic. So there really is a big, big range of variation. And I think what that says to us is that we shouldn't look at this whole generation of, of children as being damaged in some way. But there are some children right now that need some extra help and that we should really be thinking about how can we help those children that might need extra help that maybe experienced delays during the pandemic or their delays were missed due to lack of healthcare during the pandemic? And how can we help those children, but not seeing this as a whole generation of children that are behind? Right. And we also know that children, you know, of older ages experienced more um, increased mental health problems and learning loss as a result of the pandemic. So it's also important to think about, and again, this wasn't across the board. This was, there was a lot of variation that was particularly for lower income families. So how could we help those, those older children as well who were negatively impacted? Sure. And, and it's interesting because to me, I also see a positive aspect of it in the sense that there was maybe more connection within the family. Because I know when we, when it first started, I had families, you know, telling me, oh my goodness, we're having dinner 
sitting down every night, you know, which is which was very unusual before because we were, you know, going to different places and activities and so forth. So there was, you know, for for some it was it there was a positive impact, but what I have seen is kind of an uptick in in anxiety in children. Like I, I know I have a um, a young neighbor who came over the other day, and she she you know suddenly got uncomfortable being around people and and wanted to put her mask on, for example. Right, so it's kind of this this anxiety that. Um, we, I think, had also as adults and kind of, you know, children now have it. So how do we, you know, let parents know, like how, what can parents do to help those children who kind of have maybe a little PTSD of, of this whole experience? Yes, yes. I think it's very important to recognize that that experience of having increased anxiety is normal. You know, these children have been through a lot and we want to validate that in kids, you know, that you have, you know, whether it's social anxiety, like, you know, you haven't seen, been around big crowds of people for years. And, you know, this is a little overwhelming and this is anxiety provoking. And um, rather than, you know, I think a lot of us as adults, we're kind of like, oh, just get back to normal, you know, because, but we forget that for children, you know, a lot of these children, half their lives have been lived like this or half the lives they remember. So they're not in this huge rush to get back to normal that we are. Or they don't know what normal is because they didn't experience it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So just validating their experience, um, but at the same time, also encouraging them, you know, gently and gradually to face their fears. You know, we don't want to create a situation where we are accommodating our children's fears because research really shows that contributes to greater anxiety. So, you know, if your child has social anxiety, for example, you're not just going to throw them into a big crowd of kids and say, good luck, get over it. You know, you're going to come up with a plan to with them, you know, in partnership to how can we address this so you can achieve your goals of, you know, having friends and doing the things you enjoy. Um, and it would start, you know, very gradually, like having a play date one-on-one with somebody that they're more familiar with. And then you work up to the bigger crowds of people and help your child to, you know, very gently and very gradually to face those fears and to enter these new situations. And, and, you know, at the same time, you're giving them some coping skills for dealing with this anxiety and not just throwing them in blind. Right. Now, you said something very interesting. You said that accommodating our children's fears is actually not a good thing. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, I think as a parent, you know, it's as always, it's always about balance. You know, we want to, you know, what the research really finds to be most effective for anxiety is validating their feelings, but also pushing them to face their fears and to, you know, challenge themselves. If you accommodating our children's fears would be, you know, for example, if your child has anxiety about going a different way to school that you always make sure you go to the same way to school, even if it means that like you're stuck in terrible traffic. And it could also mean, you know, you're avoiding certain activities that are important to your family because of your child's anxiety. And you want to make sure that you're not, you know, going out of your way to give your child, you know, a completely comfortable life that's devoid of any anxiety. You know, we want our children to experience small amounts of 
stress that they can manage in a situation where we're providing them support or, you know, helping them to use their coping skills. We don't want our children to live lives of absolutely no anxiety ever because, you know, that's not the real world. That's not exactly. I was going to say that's not really reality. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Perfect. And I know that you, you talk about uh, screen time with children and I'm sure that the, pandemic, you know, I know, brought on a lot more interaction with the digital world and, you know, school being online and so forth. What, what now that we can maybe take a step back and we don't need uh, screens as much, what, um, what is the research saying about, you know, the, the screen times with children? So I'm, I, I will say, I'll be honest, I'm very opinionated about this. And I just, I, I have a love-hate relationship with technology. But I would love to know, you know, from your profession and, and the, the research, what is being said today in 2023 about screens and young children? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a lot of research out there on screen time. And unfortunately, a lot of it is um, correlational, meaning that we are looking at associations between screen time and different child outcomes. We can't really ethically assign one family to put their child in front of a TV all day and another family not to. Um, And that would be the only way we could really determine if screen time actually causes these negative impacts, we do know that, you know, screen time is correlated with a lot of negative child outcomes, um, you know, such as lower cognitive scores, which is IQ, um, impaired language development, um, poor academic skills, behavioral problems. So we know it's correlated, but the problem is we don't, the, the families that choose to use excessive amounts of screen time are very different from the families that don't. And those differences between those families could be causing those outcomes. And we just don't really know. The thing that we do know is that high quality interactions between a parent and caregiver are better for a child's learning and development than screen time. You know, even the most high quality, um, you know, there's a lot of television shows out there, you know, Miss Rachel is really big with um, babies and toddlers right now that claim to be very high quality and very educational. And I do think these shows are potentially better than, you know, some other shows that have been geared towards children in the past. But even these most high quality educational shows do not even hold a candle to in-person interaction with a caregiver and a child. Um, So the way I really advise parents to think about this is if you are in a situation where you feel like you can have a high quality interaction with your child, that's always going to be better for your child. Um, But if you aren't in a situation where you feel like you can have this high quality interaction, then, you know, for example, if you need to keep your child safe while you make dinner, or if you feel like you are about to lose your cool and just really yell at your kids. Like it might be better for them to be on a screen in that situation. Um, but thinking about what is screen time replacing in your day rather than, um, you know, whether screen time is good or bad, thinking about, you know, is it replacing an interaction with you? Is it replacing physical activity, which we know is 
very important for children. A huge one is, is it replacing sleep, particularly for tweens and teens? It's very common for screen time to replace sleep. Um, is it replacing homework time? Is it replacing, you know, having a good quality meal? Um, so thinking about what is screen time potentially replacing in your day, which could potentially be better for your child's development. If it's replacing, you know, you yelling at them because you have reached the end of your rope, or if it's replacing, you know, them having to sit and, you know, sit there and do nothing while you are worried about them potentially getting hurt while you're making dinner, then that might be a good choice. But just really thinking about those trade-offs. Right. Yeah. And I like the way you're, you're, you're referencing like, what is it replacing as opposed to whether it's beneficial or not? And and I know for me, and this is, you know, I don't, I, like you say, I don't have the research to back it, but I have seen it with my own children or with other people's children, and especially having worked in a, in a Montessori classroom, the difference in attention and concentration that the children had whether they had watched a show during breakfast, for example, before coming to school, or if they watched something, you know, in the car on their way to school, very, very different uh, concentration and focus from those children. So it's, for me, it's, it's, it's my personal research, I guess, uh, that I just see that there's, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing for me that is positive, especially when we know that there is so much brain development going on those first, you know, six, seven years uh, that, you know, why ruin that basically? Yes. And the research definitely shows that this is a very common misconception. I think that, so children younger than three, there's absolutely no evidence of learning from screen time. So, um, you know, there have been studies of some of these educational shows um, like the baby Einstein um, of the 1990s, which was a huge craze. There were a lot of research of that, and they showed absolutely no learning. Um, you know, they would quiz the the children on the actual, you know, the words they were teaching in these videos that were meant to be educational, and the children hadn't learned any of the words. Um, so even these, you know, higher quality, more educational shows, we don't have any evidence of children under three learning from those videos. And we even, you know, we're showing more recent research is even showing some limitations to um, even FaceTime or, you know, these interactive Zoom-like classes. Um, children seem to still learn better from real-life interactions than even the most interactive screen time. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting we're having this conversation because actually tomorrow on the podcast is um, the author of Unwired, who just uh, wrote this book about how we need to advocate for better products to protect our children because of the, you know, the industry, the technology industry has has made these, you know, apps and shows and everything very addictive and very kind of manipulative. And and if we are to protect our children, just like, you know, we had to fight the tobacco industry or the food industry, it's like, we have to step up our game to, to protect our, our children's developing brain. So, so it's interesting, yeah, that uh, we're having this conversation. And so an, another thing that, you know, you, you, you mentioned is toileting. What is 
the research or what is your kind of advice to parents during these first uh, few years when we're, you know, we're wanting our children to be toilet independent. Um, some schools, you know, will not accept children if they're still uh, not toilet independent and so forth. What do you, like, what is the research saying today as to if there's an age, a time, a way to do it that, that is more appropriate? I really wish the research gave us a little bit more guidance here. Um, I think it's one of these areas that is still developing, but the, the guidance that we have from research is, um, and I actually think it is kind of interesting because, you know, there's a lot of books and um, potty training courses out there that say, you know, there's only one way to potty train and it must be at this particular age and it must be using this particular method. Um, but research really doesn't find evidence for a particular method being more effective. And we definitely need some more research on this topic, looking into, you know, different, comparing different sorts of methods. Um, but we don't have evidence right now that one method is more, more successful than another. Um, there is research on the more child-led method, which is kind of just following your child's lead and, and letting them determine when they're ready to use the potty. And there's research showing that that eventually works. Um, and there's also research on the more intensive method, which is um, the what some of us think is like the three-day, you know, method where, you know, have the child, you know, they lock yourself in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, they go cold turkey, no more diapers. <laughs> and and there is there is research that that could also work. There's not any re research showing that one is effective over the other. There's also no research showing that there's like a particular magical age. Um, if anything, you know, it's probably around like 24 to 36 months. But, you know, the earlier you start potty training, the more likely it is to take a little bit longer. So just thinking about, you know, if you do start potty training at a younger age, that it might take a little bit longer, um, but you might be finished a little bit earlier. So it's just a trade off. Do you have you have you seen any research about the whole elimination communication trend? Because I know that 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 begins, you know, at birth, really. <sighs> Yeah, there's not a lot of research supporting it. I wish there was. I know it's popular in um, different cultures, so uh, there's there's not a lot of research supporting it. So we need we need more research to, before we can determine if that's really effective or not. Yeah, and and for me, you know, toileting is such a cultural thing too, right? Of of different cultures, different different family cultures are going to to go about it. Uh, differently, so so it's 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 very personal, I guess, and we can't really tell people that there's one way of doing it for sure. One thing, also, you you mentioned, you know, when you were talking about screens, is this um, you were saying, you know, are we trading off sleep? So I know sleep is also a you know a big hot topic, and and I know for me, sleep is like one of the most important things uh, for myself personally. And I know, I remember my pediatrician telling me like sleep, you know, for your children is, is important for their brain development. And it's, you know, you, you should pay, you know, attention to it. 
what are do we have research around sleep and and the importance of it and and how to to manage all of that? Yes. So there is some research on sleep. I do think kind of like you said, with toileting, a lot of these are personal decisions that depend a lot on your values and your culture. Um, I get a lot of questions about, you know, with infant sleep training versus um, co-sleeping. And I think, you know, there, there is some research showing that sleep training is effective. We need more research, particularly on the long-term income outcomes before we can really conclude that, you know, that is what should be done. But overall, research finds no differences in child development between children who um, were sleep trained versus co-sleep versus, you know, whatever method or lack of method parents chose. So I think what that says to me is that you really should choose whatever feels best for your child. I think people on both sides of the argument would say, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. You know, if you don't sleep train, your child will never learn to self-soothe. And then people will say, you know, if you co-sleep, your child will always, you know, be dependent on you to fall asleep. And um, there's a lot of myths out there. And I think that, um, that the truth is that, there really ends up being no differences that we know of in child development. So parents should really make the choice that feels best for them. And you say no, no, like no different outcome in development, but what about like the more, I guess the, the, the emotional development, because I, I, and I guess this is, you know, this is for me, again, I come from, you know, a personal viewpoint is, you know, letting a child cry it out seems so hard on them. And, and, you know, the world is a, is, is a terrible place. They're letting me cry all by myself that that might, might affect like more on a psychological, on a, on a mental health. I mean, is there, is there any research backing that up at all? Yeah. So, you know, honestly, the research is kind of limited on sleep training, um, mostly for ethical issues. So, um, right. You know, there's, Again, there's research. Yeah, a lot of this parenting research is such so limited by ethical issues, which is good. But um, it is, yeah. Um, but you know, they they'll assign families to sleep training or not sleep training, but it really is up to the parents to decide what to do. Right? You can't force somebody. You know, you can basically they assign families to either be educated on sleep training or not. But what the parent chooses to do is their own choice. Um, So this research is really limited because a lot of the families that are educated about sleep training choose not to do it. And then, of course, some of the families that aren't educated do some of their own research and end up doing it anyways. So, you know, we have no evidence of differences between the groups, but I wonder what does that really mean? Because we don't really know what methods the families ended up doing. Um, So the, the best research we have suggests no evidence. But we really need more research to understand how does this impact, you know, particularly emotional outcomes, attachment. Um, And, you know, I, you know, I feel like it is such a personal issue after having three kids because I chose to co-sleep with my kids and it was the right choice for our family. But I realized that isn't the right choice for a lot of people. And, you know, some people don't feel comfortable with co-sleeping. Some people are heavy sleepers or have other sorts of risk factors that make them not want to co-sleep. And 
I understand how you can get to a point of sleep deprivation where you feel like you have no choice. And I do think, you know, I felt this all felt a lot more black and white to me before I became a parent. After becoming a parent, I understand, you know, what sleep deprivation can do to you. And I think especially when we think about postpartum mood disorders like depression and anxiety, postpartum depression and anxiety, um, sometimes you do have to make a choice that is for your mental health. And there are so many factors. So, um, you know, personally, as a mother, I did not choose sleep training. It didn't feel right to me but I could understand why somebody would make that choice. Um, And, you know, we know the research that we have tells us that the parents' well-being, the parents' mental health is so important. So we have to consider that factor as well. It's just, it's all these parenting topics are so complicated. You know, I wish it had like a super clear cut answer, but it unfortunately doesn't always. No, and that that makes sense. You know, when you say it's it's ethics, like we can't we can't you know force a family to do one thing and another to 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 for our research. So so it it does end up being on the parents of deciding what works for them in their family in their situation. And and like you say, the whole um, you know idea of the parents' mental health, I think, to me is is critical. And I'm wondering there, like there, there must be research of of how that affects the well being of our children, the the parents' mental health. Yes, yes. Yes, parents' mental health has a huge impact on children's well being, and I think that's really important for parents to keep in mind that you know we worry so much about being the perfect parent and what does it take to be the perfect parent. And a lot of times that can have a negative impact on our mental health. So we really need to be considering, you know, based on this, you know, huge body of research that consistently shows that parents' mental health has a huge impact on children's mental health. We really need to be taking care of our own mental health, if if not just for ourselves, which is a reason enough, but also for our children and their well-being. You know, we have to really think about how the decisions may impact our mental health and protect our own mental health. Yes, thank you. And I think you can't say that loud enough uh, to to parents and to, to families everywhere is to really take care of your mental health before anything, because that is how you're going to help your child and yourself. Exactly. So true. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you. This this has been uh, wonderful, Kara. I mean, I have plenty more questions, but I, I'm being mindful of the time. And um, I always like to wrap up with a more personal question, if I may. Of course. And you, yeah, and you, you mentioned that your eldest is seven. So if you were to go back maybe to eight years when you were expecting your first child, what wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? That's a great question. So I think I would tell myself that you can't be the perfect parent and that is what is for the best. Um, You know, I thought having a PhD in child psychology, I was like, of course, I'm going to be the perfect parent. I know everything, (laughs) you know, how could I not be? And then um, I had my first daughter. Um, She was a preemie. She had tons of trouble with breastfeeding. She didn't sleep. And I very quickly within, you know, days learned that this was a lot more challenging than I thought and that there was so much that was out of my control. 
and that being a perfect parent was just not possible. And as, you know, I had more children and my kids got older, I realized that being a perfect parent also isn't even optimal for them because they need to learn that it's okay to make mistakes and they need to see me fail and they need to see me repair. And if I were perfect, they wouldn't have that example and they would have an impossible standard to live up to. So I think just embrace the imperfections and realize that none of us are doing this perfectly. You know, even those of us with degrees and, you know, experience with with children and who know all the research, it doesn't matter. It's still extremely challenging and and we should embrace that we aren't always in control and that we can't do this perfectly. Beautiful. Thank you. Because that's, I think that's important for parents to hear, especially from somebody like you, you know, yourself, who is well read and knowledgeable and so forth to know that it's not easy for you as well, I think is is um, very beneficial to everyone. Thank you for, for that. Um, any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with today? I would love to just tell people where to find me if they're interested in more information. I um, Parenting Translator is a nonprofit organization, so I'm just here to provide free resources to parents. So my website is parentingtranslator.org, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok as at Parenting Translator. And I have a Substack newsletter, which is um, parentingtranslator.substack.com. Um, so these are all just um, free resources where I'm just taking all the research that's out there and translating it into information for parents and hopes that can be useful for them. Perfect. Thank you for that. And and all those links will be in our show notes as well. So thank you. Well, Kara, this has been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for making the time to be on The Art of Parenting today. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Art of Parenting Podcast. And if you did, please share it with your loved ones and make sure to leave a review so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.